Well, so good to be here. Go ahead and open your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It's where we will uh, spend our time. I want to give a thanks again to Johnny and the elders and the leadership here at Harvest Winston-Salem. But I also want to take a moment just for a shameless plug. Um, Vertical Church Charlotte launches in nine Sundays. Uh, So nine Sundays from now, we launch as a church in the fellowship uh, ready to be Christ-exalting, God-honoring, uh, super excited about what, what He is doing. Uh, God's given us 43 people uh, who are currently with us, and we believe He's building that as well. So be praying for us, if you don't mind, uh, that God would allow all things that need to happen that will happen up until launch Sunday, and that the enemy does not visit our house on launch Sunday, uh, but, that, but that God would be glorified. So if you would pray for that for me, that would be great. Um, so, so glad to be here, excited for this opportunity, and I'm, I'm really excited that I got to invited back, which means that uh, I didn't do anything really bad uh, last time, and uh, didn't hurt anybody's feelings too bad, and all that kind of good stuff, so I'm really excited to be with you guys again. Um, <clears throat> I don't know about you guys, but my first vehicle uh, was not really much to, to speak of. Uh, anybody remember their first vehicle, your first car, right? Yeah, I'm sure yours were incredible, uh, really exciting. Uh, this is a picture of my first vehicle. It was a 1966 Chevrolet pickup truck. Um, when you turn, I know, right? <laughs> when you turn the uh, the windshield wipers on, the lights would come on. Uh, no speaker in the doors. Didn't have a bed on it. It was about four different colors. Uh, so um, was really excited uh, to get that um, as a 16 year old. Thanks, Dad, for providing that. So uh, it was a vehicle got me from point A to point B. But the whole idea behind it was that my dad and I were going to restore it. And so in that whole kind of process of planning and thinking through, um, we, we, we didn't make it very far. Um, so we wound up selling it. Uh, we actually, uh, by a series of events, uh, we actually were able to buy it back. So we have a 1966 truck. Now, the ultimate goal, let me show you a picture of what it should look like instead of what it does. That is what it should look like. We're excited uh, to see if God would allow us to be able to restore it. I don't know if it'll happen. We'll see. Uh, But super excited. But have you ever met anyone that just had the knack or the ability or the talent to restore something that was just old, broke down, dilapidated, and you just, you look, and they were able to restore it to its former glory or even better, and you just look at them and it's like, I just don't understand why God didn't give me that ability. Right? How about people who can go into a home that is just nasty and broke down and dirty, and, and they, they can actually see, you know what, this, this could be really nice again. Uh, anybody in here know Chip and Joanna Gaines? Anybody in here? Yeah. So like some, some people are like, I think I could do that. And they start doing stuff in their own home, and you walk in, and it's like, um, not really sure what that is. Um, so God's given them an ability to be able to go into, and if you think about uh, the houses that they do go into, like sometimes the clients, they have to actually convince them that, hey, listen, we know that the city is trying to condemn this property, uh, but we believe that this is what it could look like. And like asking the clients to put their money on the line to actually buy the property, trust them to renovate the property, and then when you see the big reveal when they pull those uh, images apart of what the house used to look like, then you see in all of its glory this beautiful remodeled home, and you're like, man, gosh, I wish I could do that, you know? Now, here's the thing. What motivates Chip and Joanna Gaines for flipping houses and for people who flip vehicles and are able to do a really good job of that is just the love for uh, taking something old and broke down and, and making it new again. Well, here, I just 
want to tell you this morning, God loves to transform people, right? Uh, He takes us in our ugliest moment and completely transforms us to reflect His beauty. What motivates Him? It's His love. It's love that motivates Him. And the weight of His love is so overwhelming. But here's the thing. He wants you and I to experience that love today. So my goal for today is for each of you, for us, for me, to experience this shocking weight of God's love. And so today we're in Ephesians chapter 2. You're already there. You're good Bible students. You're ready to hear from the Lord. And so here we are, verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Let's pray. Wow, Lord, thank You so much for who You are and what You've done for us in Christ. Everything that we needed, You have provided. So God, I thank you. I pray that you would use this passage this morning to convict hearts, to comfort others, to remind us from where we were, you took us and you made us something new. We thank you for transforming us in that way. And so God, we submit to you, we submit to your word in this time, and we ask that you would reign supreme and allow your Holy Spirit to do its work. In Jesus' name, amen. So before you can experience the shocking weight of God's love, Two steps are necessary according to this passage. Now listen, it's not an exhaustive list of steps that need to happen in order for you to fully experience the weight of God's love. But in our passage, what Paul tells us, these two are sort of a minimum, if you will. So step number one is this. You must confront the weight of your sin. Look back at verse 1 and how it starts. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I don't know about you guys, but that's kind of an interesting way to start a conversation. Anybody in here had like some awkward encounters with people where they start a conversation and either like you can't understand them and they wind up repeating themselves three times and you know somebody says their name and you're like, uh, what did you say? Hold on, what was that again? And you still didn't get it right. And what, what an interesting way for Paul to kind of address people and say, hey, ha, you were dead. Like so, so here's, here, here's the thing. Uh, Paul says you were dead. So everybody take your, your index finger and your middle finger together right here and take it on, uh, your, on your right hand and place it on your left radial uh, artery, if you know where that is. If you, if you don't, you know, your neighbor will help you. So um, I- I- anybody not have a pulse? Okay, if we don't, I'm sure we have medical personnel that can help you. Um, but, okay, so we have a heartbeat. So, like, Paul, what do you mean we're dead? Like, what, what exactly does that mean? Is he talking about a physical death? Is he talking about a spiritual death? He's talking spiritually we are dead. What an interesting way to start a conversation. That word dead literally means, in case you, know, you needed help, without life. It means without life. Paul used it. It's used in the New Testament 128 times. And so to kind of help us get our minds wrapped around it, what does it really mean, what does that death really mean spiritually, think of a casket being set in the front of the room. Anybody been to a funeral before? Okay, most of us have been to a funeral like either at the wake or at the, uh, the receiving of friends the night before the funeral or at the funeral itself, you see a casket 
Now, we don't really have to use our imagination to determine what, what's in the casket. It's a dead person. Male, female, doesn't matter. They're dead. But the question that we need to answer is, can this dead person do anything? Yes or no? This is the audience participation part. Yes or no? Okay, I'm so glad that we are all in agreement. We don't have to really talk about that much more. No, the dead person can't do anything. So then our next question is, how did we get there? How did we get to be in this dead state? Well, Paul doesn't allow us to wonder much further after that. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now, Paul uses trespasses and sins not because he's creating a list of things that you've done wrong as much as it is for double emphasis for us to understand that the, the whole idea behind the word trespass is the fact that God has actually provided a path or a way uh, for the Old Testament saints it was the law. For us it's the way of understanding and trusting in Christ that, that there's a way to salvation. There's a, there's a way in which we should live. There's this path that God set out for us and to trespass is to either overstep or to slip off of that path. It's to divert our direction from where we're supposed to be going to a different direction. Well, so we go from trespass to then sin. Now, all of us in this room, because we know John 3.16, we know for all, you know, and, and because of the Romans road, we know all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul says in Romans 3.23. So we don't have to wonder, well, is sin in my life or is it not? You know, hey, I'm without sin. You know, we don't, we don't really kind of contemplate those things. Uh, but the word sin actually means ignoring a command of the Lord. It means actually actively and volitionally making a decision to do something contrary to what His Word says. Now I'm going to tell you, we're all in that boat. We're all paddling together. Some are on the right side, some are on the left side, some are the callers in the back, you know, making sure we're going in the... You know, I mean, so we all are in that together. Trespass, sin. That's how we got to this place where we are dead. I don't know about you, but it, I believe that everybody in here has gone beyond a boundary. Uh, think about when you were a child, your mom or dad said, don't do that, and you did what? That, <laughs> right? Don't touch this, and you just wanted to see, like, you know, the, the oven. It's like, well, don't touch it, it's hot. Oh, don't to touch it. Right? So we don't have to wonder but what about knowingly ignoring or acting against God's law or character? Pretty sure all of us have done that. But look back at chapter 1, verse 1. I think it's important for us to understand that this is a past reality that Paul is painting for us, this picture. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. It's important for us as, as good Bible students to really understand the audience that Paul is speaking to because it helps us to understand, okay, well, is he talking to me now, a, a, a 21st century uh, person, a believer, uh, or is he just talking to those who are in the New Testament times? He's talking to the saints, specifically them, but also to us who are saints. And, and to kind of clarify that a little further, a saint is a person who is, repented of their sin, and trusted Christ alone as Savior. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, this is a past reality. Before you met Christ and before Christ changed your life through the blood that he shed on Calvary, this was your life. This was your reality. This is how you lived. It's past reality. But he also shows us in verse 2 the intensity of that. 
verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I don't know about you guys, but it sounded like a whole lot of bad stuff in that verse. Well, one of the things when I read Scripture, sometimes I overlook simple things like a preposition. In verse 1, 2, and 3, we see four times that the preposition in is used. It's almost like it's, 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 kinda, it's important not to gloss over because it's showing us a progressive movement in a certain direction. Notice how Paul kind of keys that off in verse 2, in which you once walked. There was a walking that we did, which is a, the idea is in the present fallen creation. It was a way of life that we lived. It was how we lived and moved and we had our being walking in that way before we knew Christ as Savior. But not only walking, but also following. It says it again in verse 3, um, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the, and the mind. But this idea of following, what are we following? Look down. Paul says, you're following this world, which D.A. Carson says is the satanically organized system that hates and opposes all that is godly. That's a really strong way to say it. Let me say it again. This world is the satanically organized system that hates and opposes all that is godly. If you don't believe that, think about your culture. What is your culture telling you that you can't live without? It's trying to get you to place your satisfaction or define satisfaction in things other than Christ alone. Think about commercials that you see. Your life is incomplete unless you buy this deodorant right you can't possibly be living the full life that the Lord intended you to have unless you eat this hamburger twice a day you're incomplete in your life and chasing the American dream if you don't have this specific car your life is incomplete without X you can fill it in with whatever you want some commercials try to glamorize it some commercials try to make it humorous, but the fact is is that our culture is trying to get us to place satisfaction and value in things that do not ultimately satisfy. Let me just say it outright and plain so there's no confusion. Christ alone satisfies. But our culture, this satanically organized system that hates and opposes all that is godly, is constantly trying to get you to reach out and create an idol of everything that's being created. But also, the fact that our culture is hedonistic. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure constantly. Our culture wants us to find pleasure, not just satisfaction, but for, for pleasure to be the ultimate thing that we're after. How many vacation commercials have you seen recently? Right? And they show these pictures of these, these couples getting massages on a beach. It's like, I've, I've been to a beach, I've never seen that. You know? but offering this thing that pleasure is here and pleasure is here, run after this and run after that. Our world does not want us to run after God. Not just following this world, though, but also Paul throws us a little bit of a curveball and puts it right in our face, following the prince of the power of the air. Now, I know a lot of us, that's a very difficult thing to hear, to listen to, and to actually believe. But let me tell you who the prince of the power of the air is. That's Satan. Before we knew Christ, we followed Satan. As we're following the world, 
There's a little debate about whether that's truly Satan or not. But let me remind you of what else Paul says elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, to kind of prove the point, is that in their case, Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world, God of this world, which is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We clearly see that that's Satan. But look at what else. It's not just that. That's not just that it's prince of the power of the air, but he's also the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. These are unbelievers who are acting in an unbelieving way, and we should not expect them to act otherwise because they don't know Christ. Now, listen, we're at a point in the sermon where I know you guys are like, listen, I know Johnny's out. And he's, uh, we're thankful that he's getting to have some time of rest and to study and to kind of get vision for what Harvest Winston-Salem is going to be and and pursue moving forward. I'm so thankful for him and his friendship. And you're probably thinking, man, wow, I thought we were going to have a sermon series where it's nice and light, and we're talking about just the love of God, this shocking love of God. You know what? This is a harsh reality to take in. So listen, you, you're probably responding in one of three ways uh, to the passage already, because this is a lot of hard, heavy stuff. So there's three potential responses that you might be having right now. The first one is this. You might be responding with denial. You're thinking and you're evaluating your life and you're comparing yourself as you rightly should. Like, is that really me? Am I dead? Am I, did I walk in the world? Have I followed the course of the world? Have I followed the prince of the power of the air? I'm not really a Satan worshiper. Uh, the, have I pursued my flesh, carried out desires of the body and the mind? Have I, am I really a child of wrath? Like, is this really true? Like, this is Scripture. So I'm, like, wrestling with that. And so the natural thing, first category, is to deny. And you're thinking in your mind, this is the person that says, it's not that bad. You're examining your life. You're examining the things that you've done. If you're saying it's not that bad, you don't understand the gravity and the weight of your sin before a holy and righteous and perfect God. Look at your neighbor right now and say, it is that bad. Some of you had to wake your neighbor up, and that's okay. The second response that you might have, if it's not denial, maybe it's comparison. You're the person who's saying, I know somebody worse off than me. I need to get them to see this online later. I'm going to show them this sermon. They're going to hear this. I'm going to present this truth. I'm going to show them Ephesians chapter 2 and show them how much they need this and talking about they, 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 and they never really take a look at themselves. And so we're constantly comparing. We're saying, well, at least I'm not that person, and that person does this way worse than I do. I just dabble in that, and they're like all in on that. And so what we do is we create humans as the comparison to what we're supposed to live like. And I don't know about you, but the last time I checked in Scripture, the standard that we have is Christ. Let us not forget what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, 13-16. He's pointing back to the Old Testament and saying, listen, look what, remember what God told the Old Testament saints that they should be doing? Be holy because I am holy is what God said. So if we're truly going to compare ourselves to a standard, let's let the standard be holiness, which is God himself, which is Christ. The Lord also lets us know in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to uh, sympathize with us in our weaknesses. For he experienced the same things just as we did, yet without sin. Christ is our standard. We don't compare ourselves to others. God doesn't ask us to do that. And maybe there's someone who's responding in this third category, which is possibly the most dangerous, which is refusal. 
You're either denying, you're comparing, or you're refusing. This is a person that's basically saying, listen, that's just not my story. That's not my story. I don't see myself in those verses at all. This is usually the person that grew up in church that doesn't understand a time when they haven't experienced gross, outright sin. Well, I haven't committed murder, and I haven't cheated on my taxes. I've never lied. I've not really cheated on a test in school. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. And so they, they neglect to really see their heart as what's actually evil, not necessarily the things that they do or don't do. Because listen, the reality, Isaiah tells us, even our righteousness is as filthy rags. Which means that even when we do get it right, it's still stained with my humanity. And in my humanity, sometimes I do right things so that others will look at me and like me or think that I'm better than I am. I don't know about you guys, but that, listen, I struggle with that too. So maybe you're denying, maybe you're comparing, maybe you're refusing, but listen, Look back at verse 3 right now, and, and let's settle this. Paul says, Among whom we, say it out loud, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. These two words condemn us. All and rest of mankind. Paul finishes the picture of how our lives used to be through verse 3, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, being in nature. Um, it was our nature to sin against the Lord. It was in our nature. Adam and Eve, uh, in their disobedience in the garden, that sin has carried out and affects us today. It reminds me of raising a toddler. Anybody raising a toddler currently or have remember raising a toddler or anybody in here was a toddler at one point? Anybody? Listen, we were on vacation a couple of weeks ago, and my youngest daughter, Avery, she's two and a half, um, and so she's super confident uh, at the pool uh, on vacation, which is really dangerous for a toddler to be confident around water, because if they don't have their little puddle jumper on, they'll just jump in assuming that they can float and swim. And so we're trying to help her understand that's not the case. She's like her dad, a little overconfident. And so uh, so she has her puddle jumper on, and she's just jumping away. It's like, Katie, bar the door. We're doing this over and over and over and over. Until one time she starts to go to the corner of the pool and jump within the corner to the other side. And I'm like, oh, that's dangerous. We have got to stop that. And I said, Avery, do not jump. No. Right? That's what you do for a toddler. You tell them, don't do that. And then she looks at me. And you know the look I'm talking about. It's the, what are you going to do about it? Right? And like I'm in the pool, and like I'm, I'm not Michael Phelps. Clearly I'm not as tall as him, and I'm not as fast as him in the pool. Okay, let's just suffice it to say those things. And she's a good distance away from me in the pool, and I'm like, you know, allowing my words to carry weight, and she jumps. Can you believe that? Like I told her no. Like I was very clear, don't jump. Everybody in here agree that that was pretty clear? She jumped anyway with that look on her face, that little smirk. Right? So, of course, as any good parent would, I, I pulled her out of the pool, gave her a pop, and I set her in timeout for a while. And she's like, aww. Like, that's literally the noise she makes as a two-and-a-half-year-old. It's kind of cute. You really don't want to be upset with her. But at the same time, like, the question, though, is, is this. What that whole story is, did I have to teach her how to defy me? Yes or no? 
No. I didn't have to teach that. Just like you and I understand that we didn't have to be taught to like want to do something other than our parents said, right? Remember I said, don't touch the stove. And you're like, oh, I wonder how hot it really is. It's like, now I'm burned. <laughs> and so this whole idea of the fact that like we came out having complete ability only to disobey the Lord. Like I know that's a hard topic for us to grasp and we have to be very careful in how we tease that out theologically to understand that it doesn't say something about God that Scripture doesn't say about God. But the reality is, is when we enter into this world, we enter, enter as an enemy of the Lord with our nature fully bent on satisfying itself. Okay, So I want to make sure that there's no confusion in here of what Paul is talking about. This idea of we were by nature children of wrath, this is a real deal. And what do our sinful actions gain us? God's wrath. The best that we could possibly do without Christ still incurs upon ourselves God's wrath. This destroys the notion that anyone could be basically good. Have you seen yourself and your past in these first three verses? Have you confronted the reality of your sin? Because listen, it's not something you do only once. And so if you're with me, as I'm walking through this passage, I'm like, okay, how can you, how can I now experience this shocking weight of God's love if this is who I was, if this is who I am and still struggle with those things that the past is supposed to be the past, but yet I still struggle with this sin. It's very real in my life. It starts when you confront the weight of your sin, but there's another step. Thank God there's another step. Step two is to trust God's solution. Look, look at verse four. But God. Say that with me, guys. One, two, three. But God. This is beautiful. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Listen, here. This word, but, changes everything. Say everything. Everything. Everything that was stated before it, this past reality, this dead and sin and trespasses and all that stuff, walking in the world, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, son of disobedience, we lived in the passions of our flesh, we carried out the desires of our body and our minds, we were nature, in our nature, we're children of wrath. This but negates all of that. It's like hearing, your mom has cancer, but it's treatable. Your dad was in a bad car wreck, but he's only got minor damage. Paul says you were dead, but God. What a great way to put emphasis on the one that brings life into dead people. This is huge. Notice what Paul does not say here. He does not say you were dead, but your efforts, your Bible study attendance and all the Bible studies you've been a part of, your church leadership, the ways in which you serve the church, and your witnessing abilities, all of those things have earned you salvation. No, Paul doesn't say that. You were dead, but your efforts. He doesn't say you were dead, but your church attendance, the fact that you're always here and you're always ready when the, the worship happens and the sermon takes place and you're always at church. No, he doesn't say you were dead, but your prayer life is just so strong. Maybe that's going to earn you salvation. Paul doesn't say any of those things. It's an active, passive thing. When we think about our salvation, 
God is the only active person when it comes to our salvation. We, through God's grace and through faith, are passive recipients, glad passive recipients, when we hear the gospel and are able to turn from our sin and trust Christ alone as Savior. Remember the casket? Remember how we all agreed together that the dead person in the casket can do nothing? Remember that? How does that dead person come to life then? If that's us, spiritually dead, how do we come to life? Well, is it our church attendance? No. Is it um, Bible studies that we attend? Well, no. Is it our prayer life? No. Those, none of those things have the power to save us. Listen, salvation is God's idea. It originates with God. So the only way this dead person can come to life that's in this casket, spiritually speaking, is if God regenerates their heart. God has to do something. Active, God. Passive, the recipient. You and me. It says in this passage, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. This idea rich, which means there's not, there's not a, a limit to this. It is a limitless amount of mercy that God is ready to pour out on you. God is rich in mercy. Mercy is not getting the punishment that we deserve. Anybody in here ever been pulled over by a police officer? Okay, you don't have to tell me when it was. Maybe some it was this week. I don't know. But I'm reminded of a time when I was 16, fresh with a new license, just loving life, loving the world, late for football practice, leaving the house. I was like, I got to punch it to get there. Through a residential neighborhood, 63 and a 25, I probably should have had my... Hey, easy. Don't judge me. Probably should have had my license taken away, right? 16, fresh with a license. Police officer says, well, listen, I, I didn't really see you, but I heard you. Because my, remember my 65, 66 Chevrolet pickup truck? It was louder than it was pretty, okay? So, so here I am. I just got pulled over. I see the blue lights. Everybody understands this, that, like, pit in the bottom of your stomach. It's like, <gasps> and then the next thought is what? Please don't give me a ticket. I know I was wrong. I get it, but please don't give me a ticket. If you give me a ticket, my dad's going to be so mad at me. And in our house, the consequence for getting a ticket was you get your driver's, you get your keys taken away from your vehicle and you get to ride the big cheese, the school bus, for a month. I experienced the full weight of that and have been experiencing counseling ever since. However, the reality is, is that our first desire, anytime we are wrong, is for mercy. Please show mercy on me, police officer. I acknowledge that I was in the wrong. But I'm asking you to not give me the punishment that I actually deserve. When we read on in our passage, we see that, that it's because of the great love with which God loved us that we are able to receive this mercy. How shocking is this? It was love that motivated God to act on our behalf in such a shocking way. Here's the reality. It's a picture of the gospel. What happens inside that but, right? That word, that conjunction. The gospel is readily present and beautifully on display. The fact that it was God's solution that we're trusting, which is Christ. Christ lived the life that you and I could never live. He died the death that we deserve. The consequence of sin is death. He was buried in a grave where we belonged 
but he rose on the third day victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. Everything that stood over us now stands over us no longer if we've repented of our sin and trusted Christ as Savior. The reality is, the beautiful reality is this, is that through the gospel, through God's solution, Christ His Son, look at the transformation that takes place in this passage. This is what happens for you. Is that You've gone from death to now you're alive. You've gone from being in sin and trespasses to receiving God's mercy, not getting the punishment that you deserve. Because Christ was punished for you. You go from walking in and following the world and living in the world to now you've experienced God's grace. Now, the grace part of it is now you're receiving something you didn't deserve. Christ's righteousness has now been applied to your account. You've gone from being a child of wrath to salvation through Christ. Let me tell you, you have gone from the casket to the kingdom of God. That's a beautiful reality. But you're good Bible students. You're like, well, hey, you, you, you haven't passed over, you, you passed over verse 5. You haven't really talked about that much. Well, look down at it. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God, implied, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is what makes the weight of God's love so shocking and in many cases so scandalous. The fact that He would let a sinner go free by punishing His own Son. Paul says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. This reminds me of uh, my oldest daughter, who's eight, Lily Kate's diaper. You're probably wondering, what in the world? right? So, when you're a, a new parent, this was our first child. We, you kind of don't do some things with your first child with your next two or your, your third. Um, so um, so we were introducing foods one at a time uh, because that's apparently how you find out if kids are allergic to something. Well, this particular week was the week where we introduced prunes to her diet. And we're on a long journey, and we're headed to a camp. I was a youth pastor at the time. The camp was in New Orleans. We were in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So it's about a seven-and-a-half-hour journey. And so on our way down there, as little kids do, she made a mess. Well, the way I found out about that is my wife calls me once we arrive at the camp, and she says, Honey, I, I need you to come over and take a look at this. And I'm like, Okay, I know what that means. That means, hey, I really I need you to come handle this. And so I walk in and am blown away at what I saw. She had mess all over her. Like how it goes up um, into armpits and the back of the hair and... I just I don't understand like the natural flow of nature and the laws of physics, how that's even possible. And so I remember thinking in my own sinful heart, like, okay, I can handle this if I can have a hose and be about 20 feet away, pretty sure I can make all that go away, right? Don't have to smell it, don't have to touch it. But I mean, like, I was like, I was grossed out. Like, I have a strong stomach and was losing it a little bit. And so, like, my first reaction wasn't like, hey, I want to get in there and take care of this. My first reaction was like to run. And so, so here we are. My child is in her own mess. And she stinks. I don't really want to touch her. But because I love her, I would not leave her in her mess. I want you to think about the picture of the gospel that we're seeing here right now in Ephesians chapter 2. 
What, what we are seeing in Ephesians chapter 2 is the fact that in our worst possible state, when you and I were most unlovable, when we deserved to be destroyed by God's wrath, in our mess, in our filth, in our nasty diaper, there's no reason why God would look down on us and show favor. He looks down on us and he says, look, I love you too much to leave you where you are. So he provides Christ as the means by which salvation is possible. God loves sinners too much to leave them where they are without hope. Here's the reality, that there are some in this room who understand this reality because you have been saved by the grace of God, but there are some in this room that do not understand that. Your reality is still in verses 1 through 3 where you're still in the world and you're following Satan and all those things are taking place. And here, God doesn't want you to be there. The reality is this, is when we trust God's solution, we have to let Him do heart surgery on us. It's like sitting in a doctor's office after being examined, wondering what on earth is going on because you feel awful. The doctor enters the room and he says, look, the bad news is this. You've got 95% blockage in your main artery leading to your heart. But the good news is we can do surgery. Now let me tell you what doesn't happen. You don't look at the doctor and say, hey, okay, fine, give me the scalpel, lay me down on the table, and I'll do this myself. I'll fix myself, stitch myself back up and be just fine. You can't do that. You're in a casket. You're dead. But what you do you turn over all control to the surgeon and trusted in his knowledge and skill and ability that God gave him that he could do the work of a surgeon. The reality is that some in this room hearing this message of the gospel need to relinquish control of your life. You need to trust Christ as the surgeon to change your heart. 